Well, as strange as it may sound, growing up, I experienced a lot of loss. My mom lost her first husband at a young age. My dad lost his first wife. The mom and dad actually met at a funeral. You never know who you're gonna meet at a funeral home. My maternal grandparents passed away before I knew them. My paternal grandmother uh, died when my dad was young. My uncle died on his honeymoon, and there was a lot of death and loss. And to be honest, I never thought I'd get to middle age. I always thought I would uh, die young because that seemed to be part of my family. But my dad had a child, uh, my brother, from the marriage of his first wife. And I grew up with a, a half-brother, and we were very much just like brothers. But I often wondered if his mom hadn't passed away, if he hadn't experienced loss, I would not be here. And his loss was my gain. And sometimes we wonder what happens when we lose something or we go through pain or we go through suffering. Who else is experiencing goodness through that? And this mystery, I think, is part of our story as we dig into Esther, that the providence of God, there are wonderful things and hard things, and God somehow works through them. And so we're in chapter two today of the story of Esther. Last week we started and we really looked at King, King Ahasuerus, also known as Xerxes. In chapter one, he has a big party. He's showing off his wealth. He wants to show off his wife. She says no, he gets threatened and upset because she won't do what he says. And there becomes a national crisis. And in chapter one, we see all this dysfunction that it's very secular society. It's a very hedonistic society, that there's a lot of power struggles and control and government overreach and craziness. And we see that this is the culture in which God's people were living, that there were a million Jewish people who were living in Persia at this time, and they were trying to navigate this. And today we're going to look particularly at Esther and Mordecai, two Jewish people who are trying to live in a culture where their faith was not the dominant culture. And how do they walk that tightrope living as faithful people of God and citizens of Persia? And I think this is a challenge we face as faith and Christianity becomes less and less part of the dominant faith in our country. And what we saw last week is one of the ways to see God at work and to live that way is to really surrender control to God. Today, what we're going to see is the way to kind of navigate is to walk in humility that we're gonna look together at, at pride and humility. And in fact, what we're gonna see is that God's providence resists pride, but God's providence gives grace to those who are humble. And um, the book of I, uh, Proverbs says it this way, chapter three, verse 34, toward the scorners, God is scornful, but to the humble, he gives favor. James kind of rewrote this verse, so to speak, and in his letter, he says, God resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. And today we're gonna look at just the contrast between the pride of Xerxes and the humility of Mordecai and Esther, and to understand this, that the way to navigate this culture, the way to see God's fingerprints and at work in our life is to live a life of humility. So we're gonna start at the very beginning, it kind of, counterpoints Xerxes and Esther and Mordecai. And, and we see how God opposes the proud and what Xerxes experiences. In verse one of chapter two, it says, after these things, when the anger of Xerxes or King Ahasuerus had abated, he remembered Vashti 
and what she had done and what had been decreed against her. And then the king's young men who attended him said, let beautiful young virgins be, virgins be sought out for the king and let the king appoint officers in all the provinces of his kingdom to gather all the beautiful young virgins to the harem and Susa, the citadel, under custody of Haggai, the king's eunuch, who is in charge of all the women. And let their cosmetics be given them and let the young woman who pleases the king be queen instead of Vashti. And this pleased the king and he did so. So here, chapter two, it starts with this phrase, after these things. And what we understand is there's a break between chapter one and chapter two of about three or four years. And during those years, King Xerxes was at war. In 490 BC, uh, his dad, Darius the Great, had a big loss against the Greeks. And so Xerxes wanted to avenge that loss. And we know from history that between chapter one and chapter two, Xerxes goes to Greece, he takes a big army there. He has a win against Leonidas and the 300 uh, men of the Spartans. And then he gets to Athens. And in Athens, it starts out well. He destroys the Parthenon on top of the apocalypse. Uh, but then he hears word that his navy has been captured, decimated. And so he tries to go back to avenge that. He gets in another big battle. He has a number of losses and he kind of goes back to Persia with his tail between his legs. And what we see here is it's true. God, he opposes the proud. In fact, you know, scripture says uh, that pride comes right before fall or disaster. And here in chapter one, you have Xerxes displaying all his pride. And in chapter two, he's lost. He's lost. And sometimes being number one is not the best position because someone is always coming after you. And so as he gets back home, it says he's angry. When his anger subsides, why is he angry? It's because his pride, because his pride was challenged. And anger is usually a secondary emotion. It comes because we see something else. Uh, sometimes there's anger because we see injustice and unrighteousness happen to people and we wanna do something. Let's be honest, most of the times we're angry is because our pride has been challenged. We've made a mistake, something's happened, something's pointed out something, and we're anger because our pride has kind of been diminished. And this is what we see, chapter one, the pride of Xerxes, all of a sudden in chapter two, it all comes crashing down. And as his anger subsides, it says he remembered kind of Vashti, his wife, and what had happened. And the word remember there, it has kind of a, a longing, a nostalgia to it. He kind of with fond memories remembered what happened. And of course, you know, he comes home from war defeated and there's no one to give him a hug, no one to welcome him, no one to kind of like speak into his soul. And his advisors around see this and they're all of a sudden freaking out. What's the king going to do? He's got a loss, his pride has been attacked. He's got no one there. So they cook up a plan. Now notice it says here that these were young men, these advisors, they were not like seasoned people on the Supreme Court. They were young guys. Xerxes was probably about 38 at the time. We assume these guys were younger. And so what's their plan? Look what it is. Well, Xerxes, here's how we're gonna fix your problem. We're gonna have kind of like Persia's version of The Bachelor. We're gonna round up all the most attractive young women in Persia. They're gonna have kind of a contest. They'll spend a year beginning to look their best and training for the part of being Vashti. And then you get to be with each one for a night and you can choose the one that you want. 
And so here we see that this is setting up a situation for God to work. And in the midst of this contest, so to speak, we meet Mordecai and Esther, kind of the counterpoints of Xerxes' pride. And we see here, see here that humility brings God's grace. God brings favor to the humble. And so as the story continues, we meet Xerxes. It says in verse five, now there was a Jew in Susa, the citadel, whose name was Mordecai, the son of Jair, son of Shammai, son of Kish, a Benjamite, who had been carried away from Jerusalem among the captives, carried away with Jeconah, king of Judah, whom Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, had carried away. And he was bringing up Hadassah, that is Esther, the daughter of his uncle, for she had neither father nor mother. And the young woman had a beautiful figure and was lovely to look at. And when her father and her mother died, Mordecai took her as his own daughter. And so here we meet Mordecai. And what we learn about him is that he was of the tribe of Benjamin. He was a descendant, most likely, of King Saul. He had come from kind of a big family. And the descendants of Saul, we're gonna see, are gonna take place next week. We're gonna see something that Saul really did not do. And, and so that kind of plays into the story. But we see here that he was an exile. Three times, it says, he was carried away. His ancestors were carried away into Assyria, then carried away into Babylon, uh, carried away into Persia, that he is not a person who belongs. That's really what it's saying. He's a fish out of water in Babylon. Everybody knows, or a fish out of water in Persia, everybody knows he's not to be there. And he's not welcome there. But what we see, counterposed to Xerxes' humility, or Xerxes' pride, is Mordecai's humility. And what we see is that humility opens the door to humanity. And what does Mordecai do? Mordecai adopts his cousin, who is an orphan, and takes her in. And, and what we see is this is what happens. Pride, it kind of separates us from people, it isolates us, but humility opens the door to being humane and doing things we would never do, welcoming people in. Now, there was nothing in scripture, there was no Old Testament law at all, that if your cousin died, you had to bring them into your family. But for whatever reason, Mordecai has compassion on Esther, who has lost her mom and dad, and brings her in completely as family. And here is Mordecai and Esther. They're these two Jewish people minding their own business. And all of a sudden, they get caught up in this big beauty pageant that the king's advisors kind of think about. And so as the story continues, we see here Esther kind of enters the picture. It says in verse 8, So when the king's order and his edict were proclaimed, and when many young women were gathered in Susa, the citadel, in custody of Haggai, Esther also was taken into the king's palace and put in custody of Haggai, who had charge of the women. And the young woman pleased him and won his favor. And he quickly provided her with her cosmetics and her portion of food and with seven chosen young women from the king's palace and advanced her and her young women to the best place in the harem. And Esther had not made known her people or kindred for Mordecai had commanded her not to make it known. And every day Mordecai walked in front of the court of the harem to learn how Esther was and what was happening to her. Now, when her turn came for each young woman to go into King Ahasuerus after being 12 months under the regulations for the women, since this was the regular period of their beautifying, six months with the oil of myrrh, um, and then six months uh, of spices and ointments for women, 
when the young woman went into the king in this way, she was given whatever she desired to take with her from the harem to the king's palace. And in the evening, she would go in, and in the morning, she would return to the second harem in custody of Shagaz, the king's eunuch, who was in charge of all the concubines. And she would not go into the king again unless the king delighted in her, and she was summoned by the name Esther. And so here we finally, in chapter 2, meet this young woman, Esther. She has two names in scripture. Hadassah is her Hebrew name, and Hadassah, it means a myrtle. And we see here, kind of in our graphic, you see a close-up, just the picture of these myrtle plants. And also, in her Persian name was probably Esther. And Esther, it means hidden or it can mean star. And I love the idea of Esther being hidden because we see here in our graphic that God is always in the background. He may look hidden, but he's very present. And here in the graphic at the very top, you see the E for Esther, this emblem of who she is and uh, the main focus, so to speak, of this story. And often I think sometimes when we hear this story or we think of it, we think, oh, there's this big beauty contest that Persia has, uh, that Esther maybe signs up, perhaps Mordecai encourages like, hey, why don't you look? Maybe you can kind of win the favor of the king. That's not at all what the passage says. In fact, it's quite more sinister than that. And what we see is there was a decree that went out that all the young women were to come to the palace and that they were carried away. They were taken. And in the Hebrew, that word taken, it has a sense of grabbing or taken away by force. I mean, there's a passive sense for Esther. There's nothing that she could do. And, and to be honest, this is like a very ancient form of sex trafficking. And what we see is that the king's people went all out around the country, picked the women that they wanted and brought them back. And Esther doesn't seem to have any choice. And that she is taken alone in this harem, 12 months of beauty treatments. And then at one point she's gonna go in, spend a night with the king and he's either gonna like her and she becomes queen or her life gets really tragic after that. That she's gonna be taken to another harem part of the king's concubines, perhaps kind of shipped out to some of the other men uh, in the royal palace, her life was really over. And I think we need to sit with this for a moment. And, and that Esther that was giving up here, or what was taken from her, was her, she had no ability to marry, couldn't marry a nice Jewish guy, would never really have family or kids. Her life was over. And we sometimes don't understand this. We think, why did Esther go and do this? Why would she even want to have a relationship with a non-Jewish person? She had no choice. And so some of you maybe know that. Some of you maybe have been abused. Uh, there's an organization we partner with at Bayview called Fight for Freedom that works with women who are trafficked. And all around our city in apartments and condos and nice hotels, there are women who are there who are trafficked and who are taken and who have no choice. And this, this story, for some of you, it may be triggering because you may have found yourself in, in somewhat of similar situation or in kind of an abusive situation. And uh, one of the, the things about the story is that God meets us even in the darkest places, that God is even present in the worst place in a harem that is there. But what we see with Esther, though, is that humility says no matter how much we know, we're still teachable. Humility says we're still teachable even if we think we know a lot. 
And what's hidden in the story is that she takes Mordecai's words to heart. That Mordecai says, hey, Esther, like when you go, it's gonna be difficult if they know that you're a Jewish person. So just don't say that. Use your Persian name, live kind of in the Persian culture, do that as best you can. And she's teachable. We're gonna see that she listens to Haggai, that she finds some other things to learn. She tries to understand. She doesn't think that she knows it all. She doesn't say, hey, I'm outwardly attractive. I'm just gonna do that. I am gonna learn. And we see this is kind of the, the people that God is always looking for. I think when we hire people or look for volunteers, we, we look for people who are fat, I say, who are faithful, who are available, but also who are teachable. And there's something about Xerxes' pride. I think he's just gonna do his own thing. But here is Esther. Part of what makes her kind of experience God's grace and favor is her teachability. But what we see in this story too is that because of that teachability, that humility is really a grace that opens itself to more grace. That humility is the grace of God that experiences more grace. And what we see over and over in chapter two is that Esther just experiences this tremendous favor of other people. And she falls in line, the same experience that Joseph in the Old Testament, who was taken uh, as a slave, sold uh, by his brothers, lied to in Potiphar's wife. Every time that he goes, he kind of finds favor and moves up and is elevated. It's the same with Ruth, who goes back to Israel with her mother-in-law and just does the right thing and God's hands upon her. She experiences favor. Just like Daniel, a few decades before Esther, goes to Babylon as a 13-year-old political prisoner and, and finds favor and is elevated. And we see, I think there's something between pride that kind of God resists and humility and that God opens the door and opens the door for Esther. And she finds herself with God's favor and God's grace and in wonderful places. And, and here's where we have to understand what humility is. Sometimes we think humility is weakness. Sometimes we think humility is self-abasing. And, and humility is not self-abasing. Humility is simply having God's perspective of ourself, that we see ourselves as God sees us and we're honest with that. Pride says, I'm gonna overemphasize my achievements and I'm gonna diminish, I'm not gonna even look at my weaknesses. And, and self-abasement says, oh, I'm just nothing. I have no successes. I'm all about my weaknesses and my failures. What humility though says is, hey, I know how God has wired me. I know the gifts and talents and I know my weaknesses and then God sees that and I'm gonna work on my weaknesses and I'm gonna walk in my strengths and I'm gonna see myself as God does. And I think this is what Esther experiences, that even though we don't know a lot about her spiritual relationship, that she had a sense of how God had created her. And notice what it says. It says first that she finds favor with Haggai, who was like the, the chief eunuch who was looking after the harem. And somehow this poor Jewish orphan gets there and through her winsomeness, I think through her humility, that all of a sudden that, that Haggai notices her, sees maybe something different with her, sees her interior world. And all of a sudden, Haggai, notice he gives her the best place to live, gives her the nicest bedroom, says, hey, here's some good friends, some people that are gonna help you. And, and notice that it says, gave her her portion of food. 
And I think we don't, again, know a lot about her spiritual relationship with God, but I'm assuming her portion of food is very similar to what Daniel experienced when he went to Babylon and, and he had a different diet, a diet that was not fully kosher, but a little more kosher, not eating what they did. That, that here that Esther somehow got to honor God even in her diet, that Haggai saw that and he, she won his favor. And then it says, this is what I think is incredible. She won the favor of everyone. Now, Josephus, the historian, says there are about 400 women who were taken for this uh, contest, about 400 women that were gathered there vying for the attention of one person. Now, have any of you ever seen an episode of The Bachelor? 25 women vying for one person. And one person gets elevated, one gets the first rose the night, and they become what? They become the target. Here is Esther. She's in this harem. They're probably noticing she's getting some little nicer treatment, but she still somehow was able to win their favor. She could have a relationship. She loved them. I don't know. You imagine 400 women vying for one person, and they still love her. She was Miss Congeniality in the midst of that. And why? Because God was at work. She was secure in herself. She understood who she was. And I think this, that, that humility is really understanding how God has created us. That humility is really um, not a low self-esteem. It's not a high self-esteem. It's having Christ esteem. It's knowing who we are in God. And so here we see in, in chapter two that pride and humility are really two types of fuel that run our life. Right? We either run our life on pride and we can run our life and it's all about me and it's what I'm going to do and I've got to go ahead and achieve and I've got to get my things. And often what happens when someone attacks our pride or points a finger at us, when someone makes a critique or understanding, either we have to just say, we get kind of die on our sword and say, oh, I'm so sorry, I'm going to change. Most likely we just get mad. And in pride, what happens? When we're proud and someone points it out, we usually point a figure back and say, it's not my problem, it's your problem. This was Xerxes, right? His pride was attacked when Vashti wouldn't come and do what he says. And so what does he do? He says, well, it's her problem and all the other women's problem. We gotta do something with that. And pride often is just a fuel of our life. And pride says, it's about me and what I'm gonna do. But humility is also a fuel. And we see there this here with Esther, that she is fueled, she is driven by humility in her life, that she surrendered herself, I think, somehow to God. She surrendered herself to who she is. She surrendered herself to, to what God is going to do and what's going to happen. I think it's interesting that it says uh, that the first six months they were to use myrrh, and myrrh is a sign of sorrow. It was what you uh, kind of anointed a dead body with. It's a, it's a symbol of grief. And, and then the last six months with these oils that are of great joy. And it's almost like I think a progression that through that year, Esther understood what it was to kind of die to herself, let her deal with the grief and, and what she experienced as an orphan and what was happening, but then to find a new sense of joy. And the challenge here is really to say, are we... Right? Are we driven? Are we fueled by pride or by humility? And God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. 
And here, Esther, as she walks in this humility, she gets grace upon grace. It's a doorway open to grace. But that happens also because humility reminds us that we need to nurture the interior of our life and not the exterior. And this is what Esther, I think, seems to do. While all the other 400 women are applying all the cosmetics and doing everything, there's a sense here that Esther is nurturing her inner world. And pride says it's about how I look. And we find this, right, with social media and how I appear and everything that's out there. And and we, friends, I I think we become slaves to kind of the exterior appearance. I mean, here was a world, this is the Persian world, that was all about how you looked. And I don't think that's much different from today. And and pride says, oh, we got to clean ourselves up and look the best and, and do everything. Uh, but humility says, I, I'm not going to look bad. I mean, I, I, Esther obviously didn't neglect her exterior appearance, but she said her inner world, her inner world, I think, was important. And, you know, Xerxes is trying to find a wife, and, and the Heavenly Father, he's trying to make us his bride, and he's forming us into his bride. And, and humility says, I, I'm going to look, I'm going to seek the heart of the Father. I'm going to understand that. And so with that in mind, as Esther has kind of centered herself, walking in humility, all of a sudden it's her turn. All of a sudden she gets to spend one night with the king. And in verse 15, it says, when the turn came for Esther, the daughter of Abiel, the uncle of Mordecai, who had taken her as his own daughter to go into the king, she asked for nothing except what Haggai, the king's eunuch, who had charge of the woman advice. Here she is, right? Showed this teachable spirit. You tell me what I need. And um, now Esther was winning favor in the eyes of all who saw her. And when Esther was taken to King Hasuerus into his royal palace in the 10th month, which is the month of Tabath in the seventh year of his reign, the king loved Esther more than any of the other women. And she won grace and favor in his sight more than all the other virgins so that he set the royal crown on her head and made her queen instead of Vashti. And then the king gave a great feast for all his officials and servants. It was Esther's feast. He also granted a remission of taxes to the provinces and gave gifts with royal generosity. Now, as a father of three girls... I want to picture this evening that Esther goes in, meets with the king, and they play Scrabble all night. Or maybe they're playing Yahtzee, or they're talking all night. And most likely, that's not what's happening. And that this is a very challenging and difficult situation, and it makes you wonder, this is probably not wise. It's not like God says, oh, this was a good thing. But we have to remember, here is Esther. It's life and death. She has no choice but to spend a night Uh, with this king. Now, maybe nothing happened. Who knows what really happened? Maybe they talked, but somewhere in the evening, she won Xerxes' heart. Perhaps he had already heard that she had favor with other people. Perhaps her reputation had really preceded her. But what we see is that out of her humility, as she just did what Haggai said, and my guess is that Haggai said, hey, He is more than just about the physical. Here, talk to his heart, strengthen him, speak into his soul. Talk more about that. That as he meets Esther, he changes. Because we see here a little different Xerxes than what begins with. All of a sudden, he's generous, right? He's taking tax breaks for everybody. He's giving gifts to everybody. And he holds a banquet, not a banquet for him. He calls this 
what Esther's feast gives it to her. And all of a sudden we see that Esther's humility, right, it rubs off. She nurtures her inner life and it rubs off. And I think Xerxes is experiencing some change in his inner life as well. Now we look at this and let's say chapter two is just fraught with challenges. I, I mean, there's all sorts of understanding, you know, was Esther like really not a faithful person? Did she not know God or love God? And she's just doing everything. Was she trying uh, to win the favor? I don't think that was it. Was It's God's word saying, oh, you can just go and sleep with anybody. That's not what God's word is saying at all. She was trapped and she was forced into things. And I think sometimes we want to look at God's word and we want to overlook the weaknesses and the foibles of people because we want them to be our heroes. And, um, you know, Abraham had a trust problem. Moses said had an anger problem. David had a lust problem. Peter had a, a talking out of his mouth problem. Esther here is caught in a situation. But Esther is not the hero of the story. See, we always want to make these people our heroes. We want to look. Esther is flawed. God is the hero of the story. In fact, God is the hero through all these accounts in the Old Testament. And our idea is to invite God in. The good news of the story is that in the worst places, in the very worst places, God is present. And so as this story ends, we see again that humility, this humility it's a choice. We don't run into humility. We just don't naturally become humble. It's a choice. And again, this chapter, it's it got, it got Xerxes, then it got Mordecai, you got Esther, and then it ends with Mordecai again. In verse 19, it says, now when the virgins were gathered together the second time, and, and we think maybe after round one, Xerxes kind of liked this uh, beauty pageant and maybe kind of did a round two, but it says Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate. Esther had not yet made known her kindred or her people as Mordecai had commanded her, for Esther obeyed Mordecai just as when she was brought up by him. And in those days, as Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate, Bigtham and Teresh, two of the king's eunuchs who guarded the threshold, became angry and sought to lay hands on King Ahasuerus. And this came to the knowledge of Mordecai, and he told it to Queen Esther, and Esther told the king in the name of Mordecai. And when the affair was investigated and found to be so, the men were both hanged on the gallows, and it was recorded in the book of Chronicles in the presence of the king. So here is Mordecai. Esther is, is in the palace. He continually checks on her, he still cares for her, he does that regularly. And he overhears two of the eunuchs, these are two eunuchs we meet in chapter one, two of the seven that went to go get Vashti, that they're trying to kill him. They're angry at Xerxes, they want to do him in. And my guess is Mordecai has a choice. I don't think anybody really liked Xerxes. I'm sure the Jewish people didn't like Xerxes. I'm sure there were a lot of people that wanted him dead. And it might have been easy for Mordecai to go, la, 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 I'm not listening and just let it pass. But he probably also knew that if Xerxes died, it wouldn't be good for Esther. And so he has a choice. He has a choice. Does he do the right thing or not? You see, and, and sometimes this is pride wants to say, I'm right. Pride's focused on who is right. Humility is focused on doing the right thing. And so he goes to Esther, says what's going to happen. She goes to the king, tells the king what Mordecai has done. And then the two guys, they're hung. They're dead. And what happens? What happens for Mordecai? Nothing. 
is just written in history. And Esther gets elevated. Mordecai, nothing happens. And here we see humility. It didn't matter to Mordecai. Mordecai wasn't saying, hey, I want a reward or I want something or I want recognition. Because I think Mordecai understood that in humility, good deeds are seeds that are planted. And we'll see that this event comes back again later in the story, but a while later. That Mordecai is not saying, hey, look at me, look what I did, like get me in the palace, do something. That humility says it's not about being right or knowing right, it's about doing the right thing. So how do we see God in the background? How do we see the fingerprints of God? How do we live in this culture where we don't always see God at work? Chapter two says, humble yourself. Choose what fuel you're running your life on. Is it pride or is it humility? God, it opposes the proud and we see here a graphic example that God gives grace to the humble. Let's pray. And Father, we thank you uh, just for this example. We live in a culture that encourages pride. It's about me. Look at me. Look what I've done. Look at my life. Look how good my life is. Look at what I eat or where I travel or what I do. And we live in a culture that's all about the exterior. Help us to nurture our interior world and to walk with humility, to walk with Christ's esteem, to know how God has created us, how he's wired us, what our strengths and abilities are so that we can be able to live for you. And Father, as we humble ourselves before you, as we open ourselves to what you have, would you show us your fingerprints? And Father, I just want to pray for those who maybe have found themselves in a compromising situation, a difficult situation, maybe who have experienced abuse of different sorts. And I just pray today, Lord, that you would meet them, that you're a God who's just as powerful in a, in a church as you are in a harem. And would you bring grace and power and forgiveness, even in the darkest of situations, in Christ's name, amen.